Before we start this podcast, I want to definitely remind you of a sponsor for Fresh of the Word, 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest. In a world of wrestling where there's hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads, don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. So if you'd like to discuss a possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or even Zubaz, then drop them a line at 20by20apparel.com. That's the number 20x, the number 20apparel.com. And also check out their enamel pin line. It's super cool. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bummy, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh and yell about it though. You see me shining like a suit on puffy. You know my grindin' shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kids, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 All right, welcome to the Fresh of the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. And like always, we have the freshest of guests for you. The guest for this episode is hip-hop culture and film writer and podcaster and proud Bostonian, Dart Adams. Having written for publications like Hip Hop Wired, Killer Boombox, NPR, Mass Appeal, Complex, and OK Player, among others, a collection of his writing was recently featured in the book, Best Damn Hip-Hop Writing, The Book of Dart, via Super Champ Books. Dart is also the host of the podcast Dart Against Humanity and the Boston Legends podcast. And if you follow Dart Adams on Twitter, you'll know why he's a legend. And please go to the show notes at freshesthepodcast.com because we did set up a list of Dart Adams' essential old-school Boston jams, and I have a playlist, and links to YouTube clips. But before we get into the interview with Dart Adams, there's a few things... But before we get into the interview with Dart Adams, there's a few things I want to talk about. You know, death has been around us for... You know, all around us these days. This pandemic has touched many of us, and we've lost people that we know because of it. You know, I think many of us hope that... During this whole pandemic, it would be one of those sliding door moments in our society where people's thoughts and prejudice might change. But what's so irritating is that even just a quick look on TV or social media, we'll see that the bigoted mindset of this nation 
has not changed one goddamn bit. We're still seeing horrific instances of unnecessary harassment in the killing of black people in America. Names like Christian Cooper, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd come to mind recently. If you don't know, just search those names and you'll see why. That's just a short list of those type of instances that still come up way too regularly in our nation. But while we're on this topic of death, there's another recent instance that really broke my heart. And it was hard for me to really... I wrote all of this down in ahead of time and it was just really hard to put it in my words and that was the passing of the Japanese wrestler Hana Kimura. She committed suicide this past weekend as a result of cyberbullying at the age of only 22. You know, I can still see the words Hana Kimura has passed away from the official announcement made by Stardom, the wrestling promotion she wrestles in scrolling in my head constantly it still doesn't feel real this hits close to home because Japanese wrestling of all kinds is a huge passion of mine and has really really been getting me through these stay-at-home orders during the pandemic been listening I've been watching new stuff old stuff you know men's women's I, I you know and it just it helped me get through it and when it comes to the wrestling that's you know of today, Hana Kimura is one of the brightest stars in this modern era. You know, I even have all sorts of photo books and magazines um, that I got from that were shipped from Japan in my collection that feature her. Either she's in it or it's one of hers. You know, um, she just always just lit up a room. You know, she lit up the the wrestling ring, um, <laughs> whether, you know, she, it's just, it's just hard to think about. And like, and like me, she was beloved by fellow wrestlers and fans alike. You know, she's a second generation wrestler with her mother, uh, Kyoko Kimura, a very prominent wrestler throughout the 2000s, early teens, most known for her death matches. I recently watched this one where she yo, it was it was nuts, man. I think she just she jumped off like the top floor at Cork and Hall in uh, Japan onto someone and I was like, yo, what the fuck? <laughs> but, you know, Hana Kimura was an ambassador for Japanese wrestling. When foreign wrestlers, and they refer to them as gaijins, come over to wrestle in any of the promotions that Hana was in, she was one of the first people to greet them and keep them company during their stay because Hana's English was the best among the other women. While mostly spending her time in wrestling promotions like Wrestle One and Stardom, Hana was an ambassador for Japanese wrestling. You know, Typically, they refer it as Joshi. When she would tour outside of Japan to promotions like Ring of Honor here in the States or Pro Wrestling Eve in the UK and, you know, various promotions uh, down in Me Mexico. You know, recently, uh, the company Bushi Road that owns Japan's biggest men's promotion, New Japan Pro Wrestling, 
they also purchased Stardom. And at New Japan's biggest event of the year, which is their Tokyo Dome show that's called Russell Kingdom, and that's uh, held every January 4th, and it was held January 4th and 5th this year, uh, they had a special Stardom Exhibition tag team match early on in the event, and guess who was a part of it? Hanakamura. It's easy to say that Hanakamura was one of the faces of modern-day Joshi and would have as long as she wanted to. This is where the problem happened, though. Hana joined the cast of the Japanese reality show Terrace House recently, um, and that's shown on Fuji TV in, uh, in Japan, and you can see it in Netflix here in the States. And in one of the episodes, you know, she even said that she went on the show to spread the word of wrestling, like kind of in the same way that you know, The Rock did movies or the Bella Twins had the reality shows on E. It, you know, expanded the 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 audience for wrestling. And she was trying to do that for for her, for stardom, for Joshi, for Japanese wrestling. But we all know with the reality TV, it's scripted and edited, create drama, you know, Reality TV uh, just sells drama, and their audience eats it up. And as much as the wrestling community loved Hanakamura, the way she was portrayed on Terrace House enraged fans of, of that show to relentlessly start bullying her via social media. And as someone like Hana who experienced bullying earlier in her life, um, apparently, because uh, she's mixed race, her mother's Japanese, and apparently her father is Indonesian. Uh, she she couldn't handle it and took her own life, and it just hurt. Like it still hurts to think about it. You know, I don't know this person like personally, but she did something that entertained me and we saw her 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 spirit all the time you know she was you know she could be serious she could be goofy she always she always you know brought people together you know she her uh her latest faction she's the leader of this faction called the Tokyo Cyber Squad in Stardom and they were kind of like she she was an inclusive group, you know. She she brought on some of the rookies, you know, and it, it's and they had fun with it, you know. Her and Jungle Kayona and Konami, and it's just it it, it really hurt, you know. On the on the day she left us, she tweeted some. Um, some self-harm photos, and the following, which is translated from Japanese, is she said, um, nearly, nearly 100 freak opinions every day. I couldn't deny they hurt me. Die. You are disgusting. You should disappear. I believe these things about myself more than they did. Thank you, Mother, for the gift of life. 
My whole life, I wanted to be loved. Thank you to everyone who supported me. I love you all. I'm sorry for being weak. And then she also, um, on Instagram, she posted a, um, a picture with her cat in the caption and um, also translated from Japanese said, Goodbye. I love you. Have fun and live a long time. I'm sorry. In a time when there's a virus that even the best scientists out there don't completely understand, you'd think that would be enough for people's hate to just chill the fuck out some, you know? But whether it's harm to black people caused by bigotry or the hateful words that can cause someone to commit suicide, how far have we, how far have we become as human beings? What can we do? Whether or not you know them personally, if you see someone being abused, do something. Any little thing could help, you know? And let the person being abused know that they don't need to go through that shit. And it will and it will pass. Um, you might need some uh, more strenuous courses of action when it comes to racism and bigotry that causes cops to kneel on a black man until he can't breathe and dies. Or just, you know, following a black man while he's running and shooting him. Or or, or just calling the police on an innocent black man because you never know how that's going to end, you know. And it's tough to deal with. It, it's tough when you're the target of that. I I can say one thing because I'm, I'm a white dude. But listening to what people say is that when you're a target, you got to live through that. You got to live through that on a daily basis. And then you have to consume the other people who's, who, who became a statistic of that target. And it's just a full circle. And, um, we need more people to stand up, I guess, but who knows? After uh, Hana Kimura's passing, her mother, uh, Kyoku Kimura, tweeted this message that was um, translated from Japanese. For everyone who cheered, befriended, and loved Hana, I am sorry that I could not protect her. I am sorry we now have this painful memory. If you are in pain, Hana will be in pain too. Please keep the cheerful memory of Hana in your heart. In order to put what Hana would say into words, I'll become stronger. And 
in combating all this, I guess we can't have hate in our in our hearts. We got, I guess we gotta have love in our hearts to be able to fuel the the defense. I guess I don't know, but um, you know, thanks for letting me get this all off my chest because it still hurts deeply. The passing of Hana Kimura. Um, I still will celebrate her her wrestling legacy. Um, in other news, before we get into my interview with uh, Dart Adams, I have picked a uh, a launch date for my uh, my Detroit music podcast, uh, Renaissance Soul. It's going to be coming out tentatively on on June 18th it might change but tentatively it'll be June 18th um and it'll be it'll be the first episode will be me will be all me talking about what Renaissance Soul is from um you know the original website where that was dedicated to Dilla's discography and then onto just Detroit hip hop and music in general, who I met during that time, who was fans, the small, like sort of niche community, the, the collection of, of hip hop websites from Michigan that, you know, really helped, helped our community branch out outside of Detroit. And, um, Onto you know what I hope to do with uh, the podcast now, so uh, that's going to be the first episode tentatively for uh, June eighteenth. So um, right now the, there's still the original two episodes up. If you search uh, Renaissance Soul on any of the on on any of the platforms, so um, you know go ahead and uh, you know go go ahead and uh, subscribe. You know so you don't miss anything. But uh, I'll be taking those two episodes down, and then I will bring, I'll put them back up. But I want to do some retweaking on everything. So, uh, and your support will definitely be appreciated because I really want to be able to uh, dive into big topics, obscure topics, whatever. When it comes to Detroit music, and I already have a you know a bunch of stuff recorded. So, um, so without further ado. Let's get into this interview with Dart Adams after a word from our sponsor. All right, welcome back to Fresh of the Word. And like always, we have the freshest of guests for you. For this episode, we definitely have a really fresh guest. He is a proud Bostonian and the host of the podcast Dart Against Humanity and Boston Legends. He is a true hip-hop journalist and a definitely he's definitely a encyclopedia when it comes to music, film, and he will tear you to shreds if you get something wrong and want to uh, debate him on it. Thank you for coming on the show, Dart Adams. No problem. That's what I'm here for. Cool, man. It's just like I've always wanted to talk with you about things because I, I love following you. I love uh, the way you break down things. Um, recently, you um, put out an anthology of your writing. Uh, it's called the the best damn hip hop writing. The the book of darts, and I loved uh, reading the pieces in there because I like like the way you break it down. Um, you're one of those guys who um, 
who tells the stories like the way they should be. There's no you're given the credit that's due, but you're not given you're never given too much credit like a lot of these people do. Um it's 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 just like you're telling the story correctly and finding the knowledge the finding a lot of times you live through these things too so you're able to have that account of what the times were like during that so that's what's so cool about you know listening to your or i mean reading your uh your your articles or reading your tweets listening to your podcasts or whatever is that it's just like you don't fuck around and try to you know make things uh about you well, one of the things I discovered early is that everybody is looking for an angle because a lot of them are careerists. And when you're careerists and you're looking for an angle, then what happens is you have your own agenda. So you're trying to slant things towards your agenda. And the problem with history is that oftentimes when we're fed history, it's through a lens, either through what people call the victor or somebody who wants to paint themselves in the proper light. So when one thing I learned early on is that when you go through history and you check history, you're getting the account that these people are telling about what happened because they saw it from their perspective. Yeah. Then you have to get the account from the other perspective. And the actual, what actually happened is somewhere in the middle. So if there's a possible third perspective, somebody on the outside who is objective, you try to get that and then you blend them all in and that's what's called history. So if you have that down, you understand how much work, how much research, how much context, um, how many angles you have to have covered in order to accurately uh, frame something. So that's why I do so much research and that's why I put so much work and thought and effort into things that I write of a uh, historical nature. Right. You always, you know, in a lot of your discussions, you always talk about the year of 1997 in regards to hip hop. How do you feel like um, the coverage of hip hop in that history changed from that year? You know, bef- how was hip hop, uh, you know, reported before then, and how was report- hip hop reported, um, you know, after then? And also, um, quickly mention what the importance of 1997 is. All right, so there was this thing that happened in 1996. Uh, the Telecom Act of 1996 was signed. Uh, what happened is that if you own something independently, whether it be mom and pops, whether it be a station or, or a radio station or a television station or anything having to do with telecommunications that was family owned or independently owned, when the Telecom Act was signed, what it meant was, and over time, these regulations got loosened and loosened and loosened all throughout the late eighties and the nineties. If you go back and check, uh, but this act opened the floodgates where if you were a corporation or you were a, 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 a huge business, you could pretty much buy up all of the independent radio stations or the smaller radio stations. And there was no more regulation. There was no more halting it. So what happened is, uh, on the record label side, it was an equal thing where we used to have 50, 75, 100 labels. Yeah. And what happened after the Telecom Act, labels started merging and labels started disappearing and started swallowing each other up. 
and we were in danger of entering something we called the unigram model, where it was one corporation owning everything under different names. And we're almost there. It's something that people are afraid of in 97 and 98 and 99. And in 2020, we're pretty much there where there's three companies. And the only reason that one company doesn't own everything is because those three companies own everything and they're butting heads constantly. <laughs> so um, the reason 1997 is important is because this is when everything started being enacted. And the top of 97, Ju- J- January 97, is when we really entered the Jiggy era. And yeah. please don't get it twisted. The Jiggy era started, like, the, the first pieces of it really started, like, 95, you know? Right. Like, if you listen to Players Anthem, it's Jiggy, you know? Yeah, We're yeah. in the Jiggy era. Yeah. But it didn't completely switch over until 1997. I went to Morgan State University, HBCU in Baltimore, Maryland, in 1996, the spring 96 semester. I went to three album release parties. I'm going to tell you what the three album release parties were. Um, there was an artist on this label called Perspective A&M, which was Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis's label. Uh, the album was called Musical Meltdown, and it was by and the album was by a kid named Young Z, who was from a group called The Outsiders. Yeah. Okay. I went to that record release party. I went to another record release party. It was an album by a group called I&I, who were signed to Electra Records on Soul Brother Records imprint, Pete Rock's record label. That album was supposed to be called um, The Life I Live, later was released as Center of Attention. All right? I went to that record release party. I went to a third record release party, and the album was by a dude named Large Professor. I'm sure you're, you're, sure you're aware of him. Yes. And the album was called The LP. The reason I mentioned these three albums is because none of them came out. Yeah. <laughs> they all got shelved. All of them. We went to the record release party and the albums never came out. So that let me know immediately something's changing in the industry. And by the time we get to January 1997, the very first hit to come out the gate is Puff Daddy and Mace. Uh, Can't nobody hold this. Hold me down. Right. And it was over from there. And record labels started dropping artists that they had from 94, 95, 96, 97. So artists like a lot of artists had their last major label album in like 95 and 96. And by 97, they were independent. Uh, you know, like a yeah. uh, perfect example. You got like um, Poor Righteous Teachers. The last album was um, New, New World Order on a major in 1996. You know, they get dropped, they break up. Then they go independent. Wise Intelligence. Wise Intelligence has his solo career, but that's why 1997 is so crucial because the coverage changed, public publications changed their their um their coverage. This was the rise of independent rap magazines. You know, you had Stress, Ego Trip, um, On the Go. You know, it was really important. Mass Appeal. It was really important to have independent coverage. And then that's the explosion of the internet, Rockus, Rockus.com, UGHH, Hip Hop Site, Sandbox Automatic. So it became a separate but equal playing field in hip hop and rap. It was it was rap apartheid, pretty much. <laughs> right, yeah. I, re- <clears throat> I remember those those years. Um, you know, I was a teenager during the, uh, you know, the, 
the nineties and, um, became, you know, it was, uh, came an adult, like during those, uh, during that backpacker era, mm-hmm. um, that you, you know, would kind of, uh, just say right now. And yeah, it, it was weird because like you would have these artists who had major label releases in the mid nineties and all of a sudden, like they're just nowhere to be found or they're on some other label in 98 and you're like yeah yo i mean i I thought they were pretty uh pretty successful before (laughs) what happened yeah Yeah, i give a perfect example of um an album uh, a single like broken language when it dropped it was on every rap radio station it was on every rap radio show it was the hip-hop pick on rap city yeah it got played on mtv it was on every mixtape you know, it was on every mixed show. You know, it was right. a major label release. But sonically and aesthetically, it's an underground indie rap record. Yeah, yeah. Now, you release that same record 18 months later, it's a white label. It's You're finding it on Sandbox. You're finding it on Hip Hop site. You're finding it on, um, people are talking about it on, Ruckus, on the Ruckus board. The UHH um, message boards are talking about this record. <laughs> Kids are hunting in different areas looking for this single in like small independent hip hop record stores. They're going to Fat Beats for it, you know. Same record, different coverage, different audience listening to it, different spread. Same fucking record. So like that just just shows you like the change that happens. Throughout, you know, throughout hip, like hip hop history, do you think there was ever like a a problem with one generation kind of uh, lending itself to the next generation? And how does that sort of go into the, the hip hop coverage that you even see today? There's always the the passing of the torch and it's always uneasy. It's always uneasy. Um, when you watch Crush Groove, Right? Crush Groove came out in 1985, October 85, right? It was filmed in between April and May 1985. Right? Right. You go, you watch Crush Groove in the theater, and as you're watching it, you're seeing Run DMC, you're seeing um, Jekyll and Hyde, you know, you're seeing LL Cool J say box. You're seeing the fat boys come in. The fat boys are teenagers. Fat boys are 14, 15 years old in this movie. <laughs> Think about that. Right. LL Cool J, box. He's 16, 17. Run DMC. These dudes are in their 20s. Even older are Jekyll and Hyde. Curtis Blow was the king of rap in this movie, all right? He's on his way out the door. He's an elder statesman. He's 25 years old. He has more albums than any other rapper. He, he has more notoriety than any other rapper because he's been out there since 1979. Um, he's producing for people. He, he's about to get the first endorsement deal. He had an endorsement deal before Run DMC did for Sprite. He was doing print ads and commercials before Run DMC got their Adidas, Adidas thing. Don't, don't, it's crazy, right? But he's the king of rap. You watch If I Rule the World. Now, the next year, Rakim comes out. It's a rap for everybody, almost. 
if they are not over, because Run DMC still had Raising Hell, but if they're not over, their days are numbered. So imagine that uneasy transition for when uh, Curtis Blow was releasing his last two albums and Big Daddy Kane's out. Oh. Raps out. <laughs> NWA's out. Yo, and these guys are rapping a whole different way, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it's always been an uneasy passing of the torch, you know? Yeah. Think about Cool Mo D. Cool Mo D was one of the old school guys that was able to hang around into the 90s, right? But you got Cool Mo D kicking it in 90s, 91, releasing an album with the worst Teddy Riley beats on it. And at the same time, we got Tretch and by Nature. We got leaders of the new school. So you're listening to Cool Mo D's album, and then you pop in LONS's album, or you pop in uh, Naughty by Nature's album, or you're listening to like guys who've been around for a while but have a new lease on life, like Intelligent Hoodlum, and you're just like, Ugh. <laughs> it's over for these dudes. Or another example. Big Public Enemy fan going back to 86, 87, right? Right. I remember playing uh, Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Back and thinking to myself while I'm listening to like KMD's album, uh, Mr. Hood, and I'm listening to what they're doing sampling wise and sonically. And I'm listening to how the noise sounds in 91 versus 87, 88, 89 and 90. And I'm like, this is the future over here. And then what put the nail in the coffin is when I heard Cypress Hill. <laughs> DJ Muggs took the noise into the 90s yeah. away that the um that the Bomb Squad couldn't anymore. Even bringing in Young Blood like uh Gary G Wiz or um or Ali D. Yeah. Or um uh what was the other dude's name? Um I can't remember his name, but uh he was another guy that worked with the Bomb Squad. Uh and he also worked with uh uh he worked with um Mob Deep. But they couldn't keep up anymore. So there's always been this uneasy passing of the torch. Fushnikin shows up, you know, and everybody's like, what is Chip Fu doing? <laughs> so, so there's always been this uneasy passing of the torch and there's always been this generational thing and guys don't know when to give up. Busy B didn't know when to hang it up. Uh, Spoonie G kept hanging on for dear life, you know? So it's, that's always been the case. It's always, but the thing is that what changed is that in the early zeros is when a lot of the rappers who started their careers as teenagers, 16, 17, 18, finally turned 30. Yeah. And they were still competitive. Like Scarface turns 30 and he's still making great albums. LL Cool J turns 30 and he's still making hits, you know? Right. Uh, you, it, it just starts changing over. And then you started noticing that, like, yo, wait a minute. Jay-Z's been 30 for, like, two years and nobody noticed. Because <laughs> he never set his age. So that's when the dynamic switched. Because when I was a kid, a 30-year-old rapper was something that was never going to exist. Yeah, right. He never set his age, you know? Right. <laughs> At what point do you feel like, uh, you know, cats changed their mindset about kind of growing with the times? Because you're seeing now... People 
like in, in an older age of what we considered hip hop are putting out some of their best work. You know, you got a Royce the five nine right now, who's one of the best in the world. And he's on the older side of his career. You know, he's been in the game for over 20 years now. He's been like 20 years in and he's putting out his best work. You know, at what point do you see that cats were like, okay, I need to sort of be open-minded about my art and kind of change with the times. It happened around the time that the first independent wave ended. So the idea really sprouted post 2002. Cause I say the, there were two, two um, errors going on simultaneously, but on different, like on different wavelengths, like above ground and below ground 97 to 2002. Right. Yeah. So you have that era ending and then you get into 2003, 2004, 2005. And now it's a new landscape and these artists are in a new stage of their life and they have to figure out what it means to be an artist now. They have children, but they still have to tour, but they have to make money independently. But people are talking about don't sell out. But at the same time, it's like, dude, if I get an opportunity to make some money, I'm going to take it. I have responsibilities and this is the doom era, you know? This is this is the this is the era where uh, we have the independent labels like uh, Death Jokes. This is when we have the Fondalums, you know, and then Fondalum has the Fondalum Fossils, you know, compilation. So it's like, oh, everything's changing. We have the Eastern Conference labels, you know. Yeah. So it's just like you realize that you look over in Minnesota and it's like, what are they doing with Rhyme Sayers? You know, and then you got like Anticon over here and these guys are evolving with the times. They're doing different things. They're, ex they're exploring different things because they're in different stages of their life. You can't be expected to do the same shit you did when you were 25, when you're 30. Your life is completely different. You have a completely different perspective and you don't want to relive things you did when you know you can do better. I don't even like I don't like writing the way I did in 2015. <laughs> I can research way better. Right. I, I'm way better with words. I understand what I'm trying to get you better. And, you know, Dude, same I'm, with me. <laughs> yeah. So it's like and I know artists that don't want to do songs from some of their old albums because they're like, I don't I, that's not me anymore. Right. You know? Like, I don't want to revisit that shit. So there was that time where artists realized that we have to go about what we're doing differently. And also they understood art is art is art. This is very important. Nobody tells uh, authors that once you get 35, you turn trash or right. you, can't, you can't make good films past 40 or you don't tell painters that eh, when you turn 40, you know, you, you start to lose it artistically. You know, these canvases It's the whiz once said that it was a shame that so many writers of his generation quit in their 20s and before they turned 30 this is because when i turned 30 that's when i finally got good right so i think that's what happened and then you know you have guys like black thought and you're like wait you're not you're not rusty you're not trash you still can do these things with words dude and then, right <laughs> yeah then you then you look over and you're like wait a minute big daddy kane can still rap 
uh, Master Ace, you can still rap. Yeah, and these guys you can know? put on shows that kill everybody, dog. Yeah. So, like, I think that's what happened. We got into a space like 2005, six, seven, and it was just like, yo, wait, you are 35 and you're still good and you're making the best music of your career. Like, you figured it out. Like, you know, you found the Duolingo. You you found it. Like, you found you found like the answer, the right. answer key. And like you're getting better with age and it took a while for people to realize that that was possible. You know, it's like landing a trick in skating. <laughs> oh shit. We can do that. And then you're like, what else can we do? When, you know, when it comes to other genres of music, like in rock music, you know, doesn't, it seems like there's not that bad of a transition from one, uh, from one, generation to another you'll see a lot of metal bands that um it's a part of like the touring plan where they will bring well they'll, they'll kind of bring out an older band sometimes even giving them a, a new life on you know new lifeline by bringing them out on tour to get their old fan their fans and then expose to each other you, you'll have multi-generational like metal tours in uh, electronic music and i know especially here in detroit they're really good from going one uh from you know one generation to another, I remember a uh, a story many many years back when Kyle Young was really uh, young. They were, um it was all the legends were down in um Miami. It was Moody Man, Kyle Craig, Saunderson, like who else? There's like probably like ten people. Um, they but in Kyle Hall was on the um was on the lineup really early. They all moved down moved down their uh their set time just so Kyle Hall could have a uh a better crowd because they wow. wanted to see this kid, uh, you know, really succeed. And I hear a lot of that too. What's the difference between these other genres in hip hop in, in comparison to hip hop in regards to sort of, you know, passing the torch? Well, the big difference comes from the culture itself and how it started. Hip hop, especially rap, everything is super hyper competitive. And the whole point was to compete, dominate, kill shit, and then <laughs> stay king of the mountain or queen of the mountain for as long as humanly possible. But on average, your run was three to five years of domination. I don't care who you were. Right. Your run is three to five years of domination. And people always try to come up to me was like, this isn't true. And I'm like, let me break it down for you. You look at the biggest groups of all time. Look at fucking uh, Wu-Tang Clan, right? Yeah. Wu-Tang Clan's run of domination. It's either 1992 to 97 or it's 1993 to 98. Right. That's their run of domination as a group. Individual artists did their thing. But that was their run of domination. Yeah. Biggie had his run. It was 92 to 97. He died. Okay? Yeah. So th it's, it's what it is. Uh, LL Cool J, you know, he had to make multiple comebacks, you know? So right. he, had his, he had his runs, 85 to 90. You know what I'm saying? So no matter who you're looking at, run DMC, 83 to 88. You know, everybody, you get three to five years to dominate. And that's the difference, right? So, and someone has to knock you out the box. Someone has to be the next new thing. When rap started, we had the first triumvirate of greats, and then we had the people that were around them. We, we dubbed them Grandmaster, 
Grandmaster Melly Mel, Grandmaster Kaz, Kumo D, right? Then around them, you had uh, Curtis Blow, you had Spoonie G, you had Busy B. You know, three more under them, right? They have their run from 1977 to 1982, right? Then 1983 happens, and this is when we get the Run DMCs, the Houdinis, everybody else, right? We get the next wave of great, the next triumvirate of greats, right? We get Rakim. We get Big Daddy Kane. No, we get Rakim, we get Cool G Rap, we get Big Daddy Kane. Around them, Cool G Rap, you know? Uh, we got KRS-One, you know? You got these other guys around them. Just Ice, you know, whatever. But you have that, you have those guys. They have their run. Then you have your next three, you know? You got your treaches. You know, you, then you, you next you go over more. You got Nas, you got Jay-Z, Biggie, Jay-Z, and Nas, you know? So that's always been the thing. So we've always had the run, the era, the era, and then people fall off or they get knocked off. So there's never been a situation where it's like, all right, we've been around long enough and sustained our audience long enough where we don't have to get off and let somebody else on. We can be on. All of us have our space and we bring somebody else up. That didn't happen until later with the reunion tours and and the space where, because here's another di difference too, right? Rock, heavy metal, funk, all that stuff has always had protection because it's under the rock umbrella. Yeah. So you have classic rock, you know? You can go and you can find, like Derek and the Dominoes, right? You want to find a Derek and the Dominoes CD or Derek and Dominoes record back when people bought records? You can find it. If you wanted Nico and the Velvet Underground, you could find that record. You know, it's a classic rock album, right? right you can right. find it. Jerry and the Pacemakers. If you wanted Ferry Across the Mersey, you could go into a record store and you could pick up Ferry Across the Mersey. I've made this example several times. However, in rap, a classic rap album from 86, 87, 88, you might not be able to find it because it wasn't protected and it wasn't playing on the radio and there was nobody to hold it up so those people kept getting royalties or they would be able to go on a reunion tour until 98, 99 when that idea even came up, you know? <laughs> right. So, so, like, there were a lot of classic rap albums from the late 80s that needed to be reissued and reintroduced to a new audience because they had no idea who the fucking skinny boys were. <laughs> right. You know, right. they had they they didn't know that like Steady B's "What's My Name" was the shit in 1987. They never heard it. Steezo, rest in peace. You know, crazy noise. These kids didn't live in a time where you could go to the store and buy it. It didn't exist. Chill Rob G's uh first album. You know, ride the rhythm. It wasn't in print. So that's a big difference too. When I was 11 years old, that was like 1992, and that's when I really started kind of uh, paying attention to what was going on in hip-hop, um, definitely because of uh, the radio stations here in Detroit. We had like 96.3 at the time, 97.9, a little bit of uh, 107.5, and they had some really good uh, hip-hop shows and played a lot of good hip-hop during the time. And what I noticed as I was going through like my teenage years is that and even looking back now is that hip hop was in this weird kind of time warp 
throughout its whole existence. Where in the '90s, like every every year could be different when it came to like what we were getting and who was popular and who who was on top, who had the hits and whatnot. It just seemed like 94 was different than 95. 95 was different than 96. 96 was different than 97. And it felt like the 90s were like that in a specific way to where like now I think about like, is hip hop any different from 2016 to 2020? Not really. It doesn't seem like it at all. You know, why was it like in the 90s there was this weird time warp where like, it was like time moved really fast and things changed so fast during that time. A lot of it had to do with the fact that we were in a golden era. So between 92 and 96 was a time of hyper competition. Um, A lot of technological advancements in terms of production equipment, studio equipment, production techniques. uh, A lot of um, competition between coasts and regions. So... The West Coast was pushing the East Coast. The East Coast was trying to keep up with the West Coast and then pushing the East Co- the West Coast further. Um, and then what happened is everybody in the Midwest was like, oh, y'all ain't going to forget about us. And then the South was like, oh, y'all acting like we don't exist. So it created this dynamic where everybody was just like, oh, you're not going to over outshine me or over- overdo me. And another thing that ends up happening is a lot of classic material ended up falling by the wayside and falling through the cracks just because we only had so much time to really give attention to to it. <laughs> right. And this is the time when we had the most record labels. So, you know, classic albums like OC's, OC's first album, Word Life, you know, it dropped the same year as an Illmatic or Ready to Die. You know, and it's like, how you how do you compete with that? Right, right. Like, how do you, as a consumer, deal with the fact you look at you look down in like months, stretches of months in '95 or '96, and sometimes you look at a release date, three classics dropped that same day. You're like, you only uh, have so much money. Crazy man, it, it was so crazy man. Like even like even during that time when you don't even realize what these these records would become. Like, you're still like, oh, my God, these are all, like, really dope, you know. And I'm just some, like, white kid from the suburbs who, who's, who trying to, you know, figure out what's, what's what through magazines and the radio. Mm-hmm. And I could tell, like, I'm like, yo, like, there's so much dopeness coming out. But then, you know, at the same time, you don't realize what, what it's all going to become, man. And it's, like, it's kind of cool to be able to live through that and not, you know, a lot of, a lot of times today you have people trying to argue things from a reference that they didn't live, you know? Yeah. And like that, that's like the next question is like, okay, for me personally, if there's, if there's things that I didn't live through, I tried to do as much like research into why was this thing? Like, why was this thing a thing? You know, there's even, you know, hip hop records that I didn't know about until many years later, but Mm -hmm. I understand their importance now, even though I didn't pay attention to them at the time, you know, Talk about like the sort of like the problem that we have with uh, documenting hip hop now where we're almost like in this point where you have younger people revising history. Well, the thing is that it's it's a casualty of economics. This is true. It's a casualty of economics and age. Right. 
HX economics. The fact of the matter is the people that were around who could properly frame things, who could be the editors, who could hang around and be like, no, you can't run this because it's missing this. It has these holes in it and send this back to the lab or, you know, write about something that you more that you know about or don't try to uh, your hands are too short to box with God on this particular subject. <laughs> the fact of the matter is that the reason why we don't have those guidelines lines those boundaries and those people to be able to like safeguard things is because they're not in the game anymore they had to leave they had to find other jobs and other professions in other spaces in order to actually make money to live on and sustain a family because they couldn't be kids and live like kids as journalists anymore when i look at the list of great journalists great writers and scribes that I grew up on, that I aspire to be like, they're all in similar fields now. They're in film, television, uh, marketing, working working with companies as consultants, yeah. you know, doing jobs where they sit in chairs and, and on boards. And they were me at one point, you know? And I get it. Like, I talk to a lot of these older writers, men, women in their 40s, 50s, and they have, you know, we couldn't keep doing it. Right. I couldn't live on peanuts. I couldn't live on getting um, uh, uh, press release records, you know, uh, promos. You know, I, I couldn't, like, use the company card to, like, take people to lunch and shit like that. And then once the money started drying up, it was like, all right, I got to get out of here and I got to get a real job and I got to become an adult. So in this space, what happens is you have a lot of young people and they're tasked with writing things about the 90s and the early zeros and they don't have the frame of reference to write about it. And the few and far between people that did can't do the writing because they're in jobs where they have to, uh, their job description isn't to uh, mentor the writers or coach the writers along. They have other shit to do because we're working in a digital economy. And it wasn't until recently I saw what it takes to work with a website, keep it open, and, and do all these other things that require you to get ad revenue that I really don't care about. I want to deal with the writing, the substance, the <laughs> right. fact checking, you know, the accuracy. But I can't do that because in order to have the fucking lights on, you got to do this shit, this mundane shit that you don't care about, but you need to. And you got people like that hinge their lives on this because this ad revenue is what makes everything work. So, you know, that's pretty much why we're the that things are the way they are because we have young people writing and they're tasked with doing things that are beyond their reach and there's nobody there to hold their hand and nobody there to correct it. I'm like one of three people in this space that has the freedom to be around and I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here because <laughs> at some point I'm going to get the position or the job that takes me away from it. Right. How, how devastating to the document documentation of hip hop history throughout today is it that we don't have access to all the 
the great writing from like those writers that you looked up to, all those magazines from the eighties and nineties, all those zines. How devastating is that? It's insanely devastating. And not only that, we don't have access to the full back catalog of um, Yo MTV raps, both um, the Friday shows with Fab Five Freddy or the daily shows with um, Ed Lover. Oh, my God. Uh, Dr. Dre, uh, T-Money. What if all that um, shit was on, on, on like, Netflix or some shit? I don't know. Yeah. On some sort of stream profile, pro, pro, um, you know, pro platform, you know? What if all that shit was, like, on... You could just go online and just watch it. You don't have that. You oh. don't have um, Pump It Up with Sister D. You don't have the full run of that. You don't have Rap City, Rap City episodes. You can't go and look at these things. And, and perfect example... I was doing a piece about the beginnings of um, the, the Fuck Compton controversy, right? Yeah. How it started. And I know it started because DJ Quick was on Yo! MTV Raps with Fat Five Freddy on the Friday. It was him and Second to None. And Fat Five Freddy usually used to ask people to freestyle. He asked them to freestyle. Quick and Second to None, we don't freestyle. And everybody went nuts over it. They lost their fucking minds over it. And shortly afterwards, that's when um, that's when uh, Tim Dog said, "Hey, I got an idea. I'm gonna go with these dudes, all of them, and I'm gonna make a song called Fuck Compton. It's gonna be my foot in the door." And he had some of the best production in the game. And he made two hits, and he made a classic rap album. Although he could barely, he, he wasn't a good rapper. He just wasn't that great. <laughs> but he made a classic album and he had two hits, Step to Me and Fuck Compton. And the reason I bring this up is because I know it happened. I know around when it happened, but I have no access to the actual episode so I could give you the specific date. Nor can I pull it up on YouTube, nor can I find clips of it, nor can I go to MTV and find an archive that tells you when the different episodes aired. Right. You can't... So think about all the great hip-hop radio shows, regional hip-hop radio shows. We don't have archives, even though individuals have recorded some episodes and have their own archives, but we don't have a combined archive of these shows. Um, so I use those sometimes to fact-check something. I'm trying to find out a release date I start looking at different radio shows in New York and colleges and universities. I start looking for uh, interviews and shit like that to try to figure out that they're going to talk about our album just came out. I could look at the calendar and figure out when it was and then, I, then it could help me with my search. So we don't have access to all that and it's absolutely devastating. And I have to do all that legwork, all that digging. I have to do that myself right? because I know it's out there, but the average person who's 25, 26, 27, 28 won't have any idea that they can even do that. Right. There's times when I remember something that I, I read back in the nineties that I want to recall and I can never find it. And I feel crazy. I'm like, I know I saw this. <laughs> so imagine how I feel where I know exactly what it is, where it is. And I and I kill myself until I find it. 
those exact words, that date, that time, that magazine. Man. <laughs> okay, one thing I love hearing from you is about, you know, Boston. You, mm-hmm. you, you tell us about the Boston that we don't see on TV, you know. We, yeah, with the, mm-hmm. you know, the crazy accents, the, you know, the Red Sox, the Celts, you know, the, the, the irregular sort of like Bostonian person, you know, you, you know, you tell us about the, you know, the black side of, of Boston, yes. the, the hip hop side of Boston, the way that, you know, a lot of times Boston isn't mentioned in hip hop, but it's had some really, you know, influential you know, aspects of it, you know, to New York and to hip hop in general, Mm -hmm. like as somebody who's just like a hardcore Bostonian, you know, what are some of the, you know, and this is probably a loaded question. What are some of the, you know, the greatest things, the, the greatest aspects of, of Boston to hip hop, you know, the greatest influences that came out of Boston that people might not really know. Well, um, without Boston, rap is completely fucked. Uh, and the reason is because the earliest rap producers, uh, a lot of them came out of the same record pool of DJs and producers and musicians. So early rap producers includes um, Arthur Baker, Bostonian, um, Michael Johnson, and, um, and Maurice Starr. Bostonians, Johnson Crew. Also, um, Tommy Boy Records exists because uh, Tom Silverman was friends with Arthur Baker, saw him always in the studio producing and stuff, and he knew everybody that came into the studio, including cats like the Beastie Boys, including uh, guys like um, Africa Bambata and um, everybody else, Russell Simmons. And he was like, yo, I want to start a record label, but I don't have anybody who knows anybody who can produce. So you want you should be a part of my label. Mind you, Arthur Baker already owned Streetwise. Yeah. Streetwise is the re- is the label that allowed for Def Jam to make its first release. It's yours came out um on Def Jam, which was the label printed on Jet on um Arthur Baker's Streetwise label. A lot of people don't know that. Um so El Rapo, El Clapo, which was like a huge hit for Joe Baton overseas, where he made a rap record and like it was huge overseas and not necessarily here. It's like the introduction of rap for a lot of people globally was produced by Arthur Baker. Okay. Um, uh, there would be no uh, the record that changed everything was really um, Planet Rock. Planet Rock was produced by Arthur Baker and John Roby with assists from um, Johnson Crew. And Johnson Crew were pissed off at the record because they used craft work. And it was it was a Boston funk record to use craft work, but everybody was going to talk about craft work. And they were like, well, it's going to overshadow everything you did. So <laughs> he makes Looking for the Perfect Beat, which is a Boston funk record, but everybody thought it was electro rap. Electro is actually just Boston slash space funk <laughs> through a different lens. And... A lot of the Boston guys, Arthur Baker, uh, John Roby was also in the studio, but uh, um, Johnson Crew, which is uh, Michael Johnson and his brother Maurice Starr's last name is Johnson, but he changed it to Starr. And Johnson is spelled differently. 
So they mentored people in the studio. The guys that mentored in the studio includes uh, Shep Pettibone, the Latin Rascals, and this guy named Marley Morrow. So Marley gets pissed off seeing these dudes use samplers like the Fairlight and other things and sampling to make what he terms dance music. <laughs> so he's like, I want to use this shit to make rap. So he goes to the sampler and he makes a mistake sampling. But what he does, he samples a snare. And he has a eureka moment in hip hop. And he realizes I can sample individual parts and then pastiche them into a drum beat. <laughs> He nice. did that working for the Boston guys. So when you go down the line of all the different contributions that Boston made to hip hop and don't even think about new edition, bringing all the rappers on tour with them so they could actually make money in bigger venues, new edition toured with everybody. They toured with, um, with uh, Curtis blow. They toured with fat boys. They toured with UTFO. You know, they toured with Run DMC. They toured with Houdini. They got everybody money. Nice. They got everybody through the door because a rap show by themselves, no. Oh, you bringing them new edition kids and not Michael Jackson off the charts? Sure. <laughs> nice, nice. So without Boston, uh, a whole lot of shit would never have popped off. Why, you know, why was Boston never like a city that you know people like really talked about though when it comes to hip-hop you know was it just because like boston cats had to go down to new york to make it a lot of it has to do with the fact that when you say boston the first thing that pops in your head is a white guy saying pock the con have a jag <laughs> um when you think boston you think an abrasive white guy with an accent with a celtics cap or a, a, a Larry Bird jersey, a dingy Larry Bird jersey or being drunk and abrasive or a woman who's not attractive with a horrible accent that's being really rude. So that's what people think when they think Boston. When I think Boston, I think Roxbury. I think South End. I think Jamaica Plain. I think Dorchester and not the Dorchester the dot. I think Dorchester, you know, I think the Brown Dorchester. So my Boston, that's a that's a thing that we have. There's a song called My Boston. The reason why the song's called My Boston is because everybody in the song talks about their Boston. There's another Boston rap song called Home. And when you listen to these songs, you understand that there's a completely different perspective and a different viewpoint from what Boston is. My experience in Boston was we didn't even have white kids in the Boston public school system, you know? So our white kid, like busing, when people think of Boston and busing, they think of black kids uh, being taken to white areas and white parents don't want them there and they're throwing rocks at the rocks at the buses. When I think busing, I think of white kids being brought into my neighborhood. Them saying the N-word or trying to, getting the shit beat out of them b before they even get the guh out. And <laughs> then all of a sudden they end up being our friends. That's what I think of because I experienced it and I lived it and other people watch it through a different lens and they're watching 25, 35 year old uh, stock footage. I, I live the shit. So that's why people don't see Boston in one way. Like look at New Edition. New Edition are as Roxbury as Roxbury can be. And at every point, the record label tried to 
downplay these guys being black people from Boston because they wanted to sell them to an audience. And when you think black and you think music and you think soul and you think funk, you don't think Boston. Yeah, I never knew where they were from until like uh, till like way into my adult years. <laughs> okay, perfect example. There's a documentary called Finding the Funk. And Finding the Funk, they uh, highlight different regions and different areas that funk was important in. Ohio, Detroit gave us techno and funk, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, you got Cincinnati, Dayton, you know, you go down to the Bay Area, you know, you, you got you got parts of New York, but there's no Boston funk represented. And I know for a fact Boston funk took the entire fucking world over. You know, like Boston funk is what the reason why electro exists is because of Boston splash space funk. You know, yeah. the reason why there's a thing called Latin hip hop slash freestyle is largely due to the influence of Boston funk. But we have been completely fucking erased off the board and God made me. So, you know, none of that shit's going to stand anymore. You know, when you're growing up, what was sort of the, the race dynamic in Boston? Because here in Detroit, you had Detroit that was uh, predominantly black. Right outside of Detroit, you had Dearborn, which is the biggest Arab population outside yeah. of, of the Middle East. And then everywhere around it was, you know, predominantly white. You know, you I had the I lived right off of eight miles, so that I, I experienced the, the hard eight mile divide, you know. So mm-hmm. what was it like in Boston, like uh, when you were growing up in regards to that? So Boston, when I was a kid, I was born in 1975. So we're talking about the years 75 through like 89, 90, right? My first 15 years of life. Boston is split into 21 neighborhoods. They're like zones. They're like regions. Boston, super territorial, very cliquish, uh, super adversarial, super competitive, Boston is so small and aggressive that, uh, what's the best way I can describe it? Okay, so Boston is equal parts Athens and Sparta. So it's the smartest of the smart, but the most aggressive and, and, and violent of, of, of the aggressive and violent. Okay? Yeah. So you can be intellectual, but you're an aggressive intellectual. <laughs> All right? That's, how, that's what my thing is. And that's from being in, in Roxbury. So I debated, I started debating people that were at Harvard, uh, uh, Boston University, uh, Boston College when I was in high school because we were always put to the test. And Boston's so small and aggressive that if you were to talk shit about somebody, you might as well just say it directly to them because it's going to get to them so fast (laughs) That you might as well just eliminate the middleman, say, Hector, yo, fuck you, I hate you. And fight <laughs> Hector now. Because, and here's the other thing about Boston, too. If you try to talk shit about somebody behind their back, people are going to be like, yo, won't you just tell him? And if you don't tell them, they'll go tell him, yo, he was talking shit about you. They'll bring you to them, and they're like, all right, y'all got to fight. Yeah. Hey, don't be a and pussy, man. You, just go talk to him, man. And if you don't, you go home, your parents would be like, I heard you got problems with this kid. The parents called their parents and like, all right, our kids are going to meet on the corner and fight. And after it's over, they're going to shake hands. Yeah, wouldn't it make you more like mad pussy just not to go face to face with somebody? 
Yes. But the <laughs> thing is that, like, so, and the thing is that Boston racially, I'm from the South End, Lower Roxbury, uh, going into Roxbury, and Boston here was diverse. So, predominantly black, Latino, Asian. So, um, black and Latinos in the South End, Lower Roxbury, right next to Chinatown, bleeding the Chinatown. So, all the kids go to school together. I went to one school, the print school. It was mixed. Black, Latino, Asian, right? Mostly Chinese. Yeah. Next school I go to is the Blackstone, which is in the Latino neighborhood via Victoria. So it's predominantly Latino, mostly Puerto Rican, some Dominican, right? And then it's the rest is black and filled out with Asians. Few white kids sprinkled in here and there in both schools, right? And because this is white flight had, had taken over starting in 76. Right. Next school I go to, to Quincy, is in Chinatown. Predominantly Asian, mostly Chinese kids, some Japanese kids and, and um, Korean kids, uh, Vietnamese kids sprinkled in. Black, Latinos, white kids sprinkled in because they were um, bust in. So we had our white kids imported. Next school I go to is in the heart of Roxbury, on Roxbury Street, near what was Dudley Square, now it's called Nubian Square. Um, overly black and Latino. Few Asian kids there. Very few white kids sprinkled in. Next school I go to, I go to an exam school. I take a test called the Latin test. You can go to three exam schools. Uh, Boston Tech, uh, Boston Latin Academy, or Boston Latin School, the oldest school in America, founded in 1635. Harvard College was made so people who would graduate from there had somewhere to uh, continue their education overwhelmingly white. Why? Because white parents held their children out of public school, put them in parochial and private schools, gave them personal tutors so that they can get into Boston Latin School, the only public school they allow their pristine white children to go to. <laughs> so I experienced intense culture shock. <laughs> I grew up in a brown world and then the combat zone in Chinatown my entire life. So when I was pressed into Boston Latin School, in seventh, eighth, ninth, ninth, ninth grade. Um, yes, I said those numbers right. Uh, I was like, what the fuck is this? My only point of reference for a white life was watching uh, John, Hughes, John Hughes films. <laughs> so I would be in shock, like, oh my God, the hierarchy works just like here. The jocks are at the top. This happens here. This happens here. Oh, this guy's going to get castigated because he's a nerd. Mind you, we're in Boston Latin School where everybody is a nerd. <laughs> All right? Right, right. So you, the jocks can do complex math and are taking Latin and comprehensive Greek. Yo. So you have to be super, super, super douchey in order to call somebody a nerd <laughs> when you just read Pyramus and Thisbe in its original Latin. <laughs> All right? This is what I'm dealing with. Wow. So, um, so that's, the, that's the Boston I grew up in. My existence was in a black, Latino, Asian environment. Went to a place called Teddy Bear Arcade, the Family Arcade. Uh, there were the two places that were um, uh, you, they were uh, allowed where everybody could come in, and we didn't want to like violate those spaces because they were they were sanctuaries. But outside, it was war. Neighborhoods, class with neighborhoods, sometimes side streets, class with other side streets. 
It was just gangs, abundant gangs, uh, starter jackets, starter hats. Every <laughs> college, university, uh, professional team was a different gang on every other street. Man, I so remember that time that too. Even here, in here, even here in Detroit, man, the Detroit area, man, it's like, like the starter jackets, like met so much talk. Mm-hmm. It's so many meetings. <laughs> yeah. See, the weird thing, too, was Boston and Detroit had several things in common, and I didn't understand how that was possible. We both were big on Adidas. Yeah. We both had this thing called perpetrating a perping, and we thought we were the only ones that did it. And then my Detroit people were just like, yo, you perping. I'm like, what did you just say? Where are you from? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm from the D. I'm from Dorchester? No, Detroit. I'm like, the what? Wait. You have top tens too? So it was really confusing for us, you know, that there were so many similarities between like Detroit, Boston. And for some odd reason, uh, Bostonians and Detroit cats, when they were in college or whatever, they became friends. So, so it was like throughout my career as a writer and as a journalist, my a lot of my peers, a lot of the people that I connected with first, especially online through the MySpace and digital era, were cats from Detroit because I knew their records. Yeah. Um. Like Sun, Paradigm, uh, all the Maurice, the guys who were at the hip hop shop, yeah. Maurice Malone's label, all those dudes. I knew of those guys because I heard them on cassette tapes, you know. And it was really weird when, like, like Federation was that was a label, right? Yes. Okay. So, like, all those releases, we heard those, and we didn't understand it was a it was a like a local Detroit label. Like we, so like I would, I first heard like uh, Proof and Eminem and Elzai and all those guys. Uh, I first heard Slum Village on an eighth hand <laughs> dub right. of, of, of Volume 1. I didn't know it was Volume 1. Yeah. And then everybody ran out to get I Don't Know when that first came out, thanks to the Beat Junkies. Right, and right. then like Slum Village, I read their name. In the liner notes of a uh, of a Roots album, Quest Quest wrote it. Uh, Mia wrote it, and I was just like, "Yo, whoever these Slum Village dudes are, like, I'm fucking with them." And yeah, let's continue on with this because I was gonna ask you this next, like, what, like, uh, you know, we talked about Boston, but let's talk about you know Detroit. Like, you know, what really sticks out to you about you know Detroit? Well, early early on, um, you got to talk about like the Juan Atkins, Kevin Sanderson, yeah, uh, era, man, uh, Carl Cox. You got to talk about Cybertron. Yeah. You know, you got to talk about RJ's last arrival. Yeah. You got to talk about the guys in Michigan ready for the world. You know, uh, uh, is his name the amazing mojo or the fantastic mojo? Electrifying mojo. The electrifying mojo. Yeah. Uh, the electrifying mojo would have radio shows and shit taped and we would catch them. And like, the music that came out of that region was like, it kind of reminded me of like the Boston funk and electronic music and soul that we made, but was through a completely different lens because in Boston, we were suppressed because people didn't know we had this culture and they saw us in a different light. Whereas everyone knew this was in Detroit. Yeah, yeah. But for some odd reason, a lot of people are like, yo, um, Detroit was a hard place to be creative in. And we're like, really? He's like, yeah. 
And I'm like, for real? Because the art y'all made is like, incredible. And then you think about Sheffield, England, how it's an industrial town, but the music out of it and, and all the bands that came out of it and all the groups that came out of it and all the people and music that came out of it all were like super progressive and made this amazing music. Yeah, I love, Sheff- I love anytime someone talks about Sheffield because they were like, I either have to make it as a band or I'm going li- I'm gonna be working in that uh, factory for the rest of my life. And yes. it's scary to them. So, and the other weird thing about Boston is that we didn't have any industry here. So, and Boston is a transient town because it's a college town. Yeah. So everybody and their mother comes here for three to five years and then leaves. So we've seen everyone, everyone has had their, has had their time here. And if you look at any industry, any label, any movement, there's people from Boston there. Um, Kanye West has uh, good music. There's a guy from Roxbury there, uh, Che Guevara, Che Pope, uh, Roxbury dude. Um, uh, you look at uh, uh, um, fucking Death Row, right? Yeah. Death Row has Big Chuck. Big Chuck from the Body Rock Crew is in a group with my cousin Emo E slash um, E Devious slash Twice Thou and Tony on Salty Clothing and the Made Men and Almighty RSO. Um, you know, like you look everywhere, you just look around the label, you look at a, a business. Um, the very first West Coast documentary about rap, the West Coast version of Wild Style and um, and Style Wars, right? It's yeah. called Breaking and Entering. Breaking and, Enter- Breaking and Entering is written and directed by a dude from Roxbury named Topper Carew. <laughs> So, like, you can't look anywhere without a Boston dude or woman raising their hands and being like, yeah, that was me. I did that shit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, all this shit is popping because of us. So, like, that that's really, like, has a lot to do with it, man. But Detroit, again, like, I can't think of a time growing up or going through different times of music where there wasn't a Detroit group, band, um, sound. DJ that wasn't pivotal in in my in my like music discovery right. or my enjoyment. It's uh it's funny that like when you describe the the funk electro of Boston and then what came out of Detroit in regards to techno and electro. I remember um there's a quote from uh Derek May where he said techno was an accident where um Parliament Funkadelic and um, craft work got stuck in an, in an elevator together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so like that's that's what really came to mind when you f- first were talking about um, kind of like where the Boston electro sort of came through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. But like the Boston funk all stars have stories that have never been told and have been overlooked. And, you know, one of the things that I'd like to do one day is do a comprehensive documentary, a book, a series, whatever, and give all these people their shine while they're still alive and still here to get their flowers. So that's something I've been working on for like the last two, three years. Yeah, that that brings up something like who are some of the I mean, this is probably a loaded question seeing that we already uh, talked about, like, like, who are some of like the unsung heroes of Boston music? That people don't talk about that none of their history has really been spoken of. Well, we got to start with 
um wow so um the energetics gotta start with the energetics they came out of another group uh career starts really on record 1974 75 uh put out an album uh 1979 come down to earth you talk about the johnson crew back when they were the johnson band individually you have michael johnson you have maurice star putting out uh, major label stuff in 79 80 you have tony rose uh of um all platinum records uh moved from boston out to the west coast did a lot of music uh production copywriting um songwriting engineering production uh he was huge early on like did a lot of session work for people you got um uh fucking uh Dwayne Omar who people do not talk about nearly enough amazing producer um musician uh you have um Gordon Mega Bucks Worthy and um, Larry Wu Wedgworth, uh, Wu and Worthy. Those guys also are Boston Funk All Stars. You have um, Cornell Brown, who is an amazing uh, songwriter, engineer, um, producer. Worked with a lot of cats, um, including Bobby Brown. Did a lot of work for um, for Bad Boy and Diddy and all those cats. Through uh, an amazing guy by the name of um, Prince Charles Alexander. Prince Charles Alexander was in a band called the City Beat Band. Uh, they were huge in Europe, Italy, Germany, the UK. Signed a major label deal in the, um, in Europe with uh, Virgin Records. Uh, he ended up mentoring a lot of uh, rappers, uh, musicians, songwriters. Worked with everybody big in the industry. Did a lot of work with Bad Boy. And he's the guy who brought in Cornell Brown. Um, it is, a, there are a laundry, laundry list of bands, names. Uh, uh, Slick. Uh, um, North End. Uh, Glory. Like, there are so many groups that I could just, like, list from the Boston Funk All-Stars. Um, a lot of them is funny because a lot of them are um, the same guys. So the Boston Funk All-Stars would reconfigure like um, Parliament Funkadelic and form different bands and sign to different labels. Yeah. So if I bring you a list, and I have a list right on this table next to me, but I'd have to dig through all this stuff, <laughs> and i just start naming names of different bands. All the same guys. They have a different <laughs> lead singer. Uh, and another thing is that Arthur Baker's wife, was um Tina B. B stands for Baker. So if you have ever watched um uh what's the name of the movie? Uh, uh Beat Street, right? Vicious Beat, Vicious Beat, Vicious Beat, Vicious Beat. You calling Tina B lame? Arthur <laughs> Baker was a musical director for um for Beat Street. Breaker's Revenge is an Arthur Baker beat. So yeah. she did the song so Jazzy Sensation. Of uh, um, like a, a hip hop classic produced by Arthur Baker, you know, like it's called like the Jazzy Five and all that other shit. It's Arthur Baker. Yeah, 
it's Arthur Baker. So like, there's a whole lot of stuff that like Boston Funk All Stars did. Oh, they did a lot of work for um, Sugar Hill Gang. They did work for uh, Tommy Boy. They owned um. So the Johnson brothers, the Johnson crew owned a label called Boston International. Arthur Baker owned Streetwise, and Tony Rose owned All Platinum. So, and then there was another label locally in Reading Mass called Critique. So between all these labels and then working for different labels like Posse and Emergency, uh, Sal Soul, uh, we, Boston, the Boston Funk All-Stars did a lot of work, man, all around the board. When it comes to, um, and this, this is definitely a, uh, something that happened with Detroit artists, uh, how often was it that like Boston artists found more success overseas than in the States or even in Boston? All the time. Donna Summer blew up in Germany. You know, Donna Summer dominated the Boston talent show circuit. Uh, left here in 67 before she even graduated high school. Uh, went to New York, tried to make it pop, ended up on a cruise ship or some shit, went to Germany, became a uh, uh, sensation and then came back stateside and when she came back to Boston she came back to Roxbury and Dorchester everybody was like you ain't LaDonna no more so uh, like that uh, Prince Charles Alexander of course huge in Italy, Germany, uh, Europe um, Michael Johnson and Johnson crew huge in Germany, Japan Italy the UK, France um, fucking New Edition were massive in the UK before uh, before New Kids on the Block blew up they blew up in Europe their first album you couldn't give that shit away here they're, they're over in Europe doing stop it girl yo Man, even when I was a kid yo even here. when I was a kid I had no idea they had an album before the album that like blew up because they didn't do shit over here and yeah I had no there. idea they had another album like I was like oh Yep. Like, even, I was like, it took me, like, a long time, like, even, like, way past of, uh, you know, New Kids on the Block's, like, run, to be like, oh, they had an album before that? Imagine me being somebody who saw these dudes in every talent show and every venue <laughs> back in 84, 85. They even practiced in my neighborhood. Yeah. They practiced down the street in my neighborhood, doing songs like The Kind of Girls We Like. And we're just like, uh And back then, they were called Nine Up. Before they changed the name of New Kids on the Block. <laughs> Nobody ever explained what Nine Nook meant. N-Y-N-U-K. <laughs> to this day, they were like, I don't know. That, that's a horrible name. Horrible name. Terrible. <laughs> Yo, um, off the top of your head, you know, what are some, you know, some records? Doesn't matter what genre, what nook of everything is, you know, that come, you know, off the top of your head, what are some Boston records that people should check out? If you know that they probably never ch- um, checked out before, or even knew existed, that would really sort of encapsulate that you know what Boston contributed to uh, music. You know, like what what are some things that they you know outside of like of course like the new edition and uh, you know the big names. What are some that you know even if they got to go hunting for them, you know YouTube rips or whatever. What are some like records that really stand out to you? Uh, Yvonne Kaysen, Cash Play, uh, Blaze, We Come to Jam, <laughs> uh, Glory, What Kind of 
uh, what kind of groove, uh, what kind of groove is this? Uh, um, let's see, uh, the energetics, uh, I have nothing. Um, there's so many, Ooh, Ooh, Ooh. Um, Maurice Starr, um, call me sometime. Um, uh, it's about time I funk you, Maurice Starr. Uh, um, uh, trick of finger in the space cadets. <laughs> um, uh, fresh game by uh, Prince Charles and the City Beat Band in the streets yeah. by Prince Charles and the City Beat Band. Combat Zone by Prince Charles and the City Beat Band. They made a song, an anthem for one of the most dangerous areas in Boston that's been memorial that's been immortalized in song, film. And there's even a, a porn company named after it. <laughs> um, combat Zone Entertainment. And it's named after the Combat Zone in Boston. Um, ooh. Uh, Save the Children by Dwayne Omar. That's another one. Um, there's so many. Um, I, oh. Uh, all of Me is All of You, 9.9. Um, that's another one. That's a, that's a funky joint. Um, ah, no more games by, uh, um, Gordon Worthy and his band. And it's the official fight song of the 1980, 81 Boston Celtics. Uh, no more games. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an incredibly funky song. It's the funkiest song about basketball. You're going to find it ain't the fish to save Pittsburgh. Um, <laughs> uh, um, there's a song called uh, Constant Penetration. It's like Constant Penetration. And that's, the boss, that's another Boston funk classic right there. Um, it's funny because I actually have like a master list of them <laughs> that I actually had because some I was uh, working with somebody to do a compilation. Yeah. And at the end of it, we were just like, how are we ever going to secure the rights to some of these songs? Because one of my uh, one of my friends who's like a, a Boston, it was a Boston producer in the rap scene or whatever. Yeah. And he um, he did this uh, recent uh, funk compilation about like obscure Boston soul and disco uh, funk classics. Yeah. And he got that released. And I'm looking at the list of the songs, and I'm like, yo, you left some stuff on tape. He's like, yeah, I want somebody else to do it. So I had to, like, contact a lawyer friend of mine to, like, figure out, like, what would it cost <laughs> for me to secure the rights to some of these recordings, man? But, yeah, man, there is a long list. Oh, here we go. Bam. Uh, messenger service, get streetwise. Kevin Fleetwood in the Cadillacs of Sound, sweat it off. Um, we got Play Patrol, Play at Your Own Risk. Slick, Love It or Beat the Bush. Slick is spelled S-L-Y-C-K. Glory, can you guess what group this is? North End, Kind of Life, Kind of Love. Um, this party's jam-packed by Dwayne Omar. Larry Wu, Let Me Show You. North End, featuring Michelle Wallace, Tease Happy and Happy Days. Glory, Let's Get Nice. Energetics come down to earth. Johnson crew, space cowboy, planet patrol, cheap thrills. And for the record, if you hear the energetics vocals and hear planet patrols vocals, same group. 
different name. <laughs> Maurice Starr, Come See Me Sometimes, the song I was telling you about. Um, the Johnsons and Maurice Starr, oh, the Johnsons featuring Maurice Starr, it, that's how it, it's on, on Boston International. Jailbait Parts 1 and 2. Super funky song about under uh, trying to smash an underage girl. Oh. When you could get away with that shit. Oh, um, fuck. Ritz. Another another name that the Boston Funk All-Stars went by. Ritz, Glory, North End, all the same group. Blaze, same group. A Ritz, Working Out. The Future, Nuclear Holocaust. Also another iteration of the Boston Funk All-Stars rapping. And Stars Computer Band, Computer Rock Control. So that's a good list of some of the songs that I was trying to get out to people, like funk, Boston Funk Classics that, you know, word. are hard to like track down and get on the compilation. Word, word. And I'll include that list in the show notes at podcast.com because mm-hmm. I want to be able to share these that information with y'all without having to take notes during this episode. <laughs> I'll actually, I have the list in front of me. I'll just take a screenshot and I'll just send it to you. Okay, that's cool. As we uh, as we wind things down, um, this is a question I like to ask people um, on, in these interviews: Is that what sort of a nugget of knowledge from your life and career that anybody listening to this, it doesn't matter what they do, could sort of project into their own life, like a lesson or anything? Um, basically, to stay the course, and uh, if you have uh, morals. Or if you have a code or ethics or standards, do not compromise them to try to get ahead. Because what's going to end up happening is that you're going to compromise yourself and you're going to regret it. And any advancements that you make are going to be temporary. And you might be stuck in a space with a bunch of people that you did not want to be associated with. I've seen it happen in this space time and time again. People have changed and tried to uh, ingratiate themselves, the people that didn't give a fuck that they lived or breathed and only wanted certain things from them. And they wanted to be in that inner circle. And in the end, they ended up regretting it and leaving the space entirely. I have stayed the course and been on the outside and done me since 2005 in this space and it's 2020 now and I'm reaping all the benefits of it and I'm one of the most respected because I never strayed and I've always kept it 100 with everybody and I I haven't deviated and one of the things that I do is that I hold myself to a certain standard but I hold other people to that same standard I'm never going to ask you to do something I'm not willing to do first and it comes off that I'm like Uh, attacking people for certain things but I put myself through the ringer Yeah, and I hold myself to an insane standard and I try to live up to it knowing that I'm human and I can fuck up at any time that's why I do this to myself (laughs) I don't think that I know everything I completely submit and know that I have to study listen, observe before I even have anything of value to say to anybody else. I spend a lot of time on mentoring and listening and and just getting people's different perspectives because without that, I understand nothing because I'm one person and I have so many blind spots. I only know so much 
because I was smart enough to be around people in different spaces and different walks of life that experience different things. So I don't come out my mouth saying dumb shit because I know that's not my place or I know that there's somebody else who could shed more light or I'm going to get more information on the matter before I come out my mouth. You know, so that's just that's just something that I just like give to people. What's your advice for people, you know, whether they're coming up or even trying to re- reinvent themselves with living in this world now where there's so much misinformation or so much noise going around and mm-hmm. people want to get their foot in the door in so many different places. People are need to have multiple avenues to be able to create income. What's your advice to, you know, swimming through all that noise, to, you know, while keeping your standards to where you're, you're not, you know, you know, being, you're not losing, you're not, you know, losing those standards or those, those morals in your, in, in yourself, you know, what's your advice mm-hmm. to those people? Well, I had to figure that out through um, trial and trial, trial and error. So again, I write about music, culture, film, yada, yada. And when you write about these things and you try to pitch these things to companies and sites and what have you, if they shut you down or they don't go with it, I take it personally because there's nothing more personal to me than this music, this art, this culture. Yeah. So I didn't understand that, dude, it's business. And I didn't understand that with other journalists and writers that they pitch 50, 60 times and they hit like 10, 15% and they drop things everywhere. And I'm like, if I send you something and you turn it down, fuck you. You know what I'm saying? So I had to figure out within myself, what was my end goal? What was I trying to do? What was I trying to get across? So I ended up falling by mistake into a space. And a lot of it had to do with me complaining. So I did a lot of complaining online for years before Just Blaze was like, yo, I have been following you for like 10 years, man. Nobody want to hear you complain. They just want to hear you tell us when you succeed. (laughs) Right. (laughs) When you figure the shit out. And I was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. And the thing is about with Just Blaze, I will say this. Just observes like the watcher. And says nothing. Yeah, he yeah he don't he don't tweet that much. And when it is, yeah. it's about like Ralph yeah. Lauren shit. <laughs> so if 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 just tweeted me this, he meant it. It was important, and I should heed it. Right. Because he didn't have to say anything. So what I did then was I was like, all right, I need to figure out exactly what I'm trying to do and figure out how to get it. So then I realized that one of the things that's killing me is that I'm putting all my eggs into the writing basket. Because I write, and I'm a writer. Yeah. I'm not realizing that there's other things you can write, right? If yeah, I was I just about to write- ask you this. Like, coming from where you come come from, what other sort of transferable skills does that go into in regards to even just writing, writing different, uh, you know, lanes, avenues, or what other just things outside of writing does that lead can that transfer to? Okay, so I write a lot of um anniversary content and historical content but when you read my pieces you realize a disgusting amount of of 
research had to go into this. Yeah. So there's always projects around in film and television. And they, the grunt work of researching is harder and harder to find somebody who's reliable. Yeah. So over the last three years, maybe, people will hit me up like, hey, um, so I got a question. I can't find this, this, and this. And I'm like, oh, it's this, this, this. Wait, how long did it take you to find that? I just know it. Wait, so could you find this, this, and this? Because it's been kicking our ass. And I'm like, absolutely. I was like, well, um, cool. I'll, <laughs> I'll pay you. I was like, you're going to have to. And then they come back with like, well, our budget only allows for this. And they give me a number that I didn't even consider that they would have lying around. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is studio and film money. And that's a prospective industry. So what that means is that they all write research and have money to develop something, and that shit may never come out. And multiple people are developing projects and got things in the works right now. And yep. of those projects, a small percentage of them will probably ever see the light of day. And some of them will be on hold for years, and then you'll get hit up. It's like, oh, yo, that thing that we were doing... In, in 2018, yeah, it's back up, and they're looking for the team again. So uh, uh, I was like, all right, fine. You're going to have to retain me. You're going to have to pay me again. You know? So that's what I had to get into. So I started uh, doing research for film and television. Then I started uh, working through that space. I started working on developing for um, film and television and then podcasting and then, like, doing consulting work for different things. And I fell into it because someone read my writing. And how it happened is one day I was tweeting some shit on Twitter and I get DM by a woman who works as a researcher and a producer on the Hassan, the Hassan Minhaj show, the Hassan Minhaj show. And she's like, yeah, we're doing a show on hip hop. And we kind of wondered if you could help us out. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely cool. So I get on a conference call, what have you. And I give them some things and everything else, and then boom, that happens. Then I get another call. Then I get another call. Then I get another DM. And all of a sudden, I'm fact-checking for books. I'm doing research for people. And all of it had to do with me writing, 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 and sticking to my guns. And when somebody didn't want something, they put it on Medium. And then me tweeting about certain things and fixing people's mistakes <laughs> to the point where people are like, this guy knows what the fuck he's talking about. So stay the course, man. Yeah. And try to find your lane in something that puts you in a different space than everybody else. Um, perfect example, I have a friend. She wants to get back in the game. She used to do a lot of interviews with rappers and shit like that. And I'm like, the thing is that, and I'm talking to her, and she's talking about her life and how it's changed and her and everything. I'm like, you're aware that your life is more interesting than the rappers that you fucking interview? <laughs> And she's like, what? I was Yo, like, Yo, yeah. Way more realer and way more interesting than the rappers that you chase down interview and the fucking cameraman that you you need to talk about your life Man. and your experiences. Yes. And that's some shit nobody else has on you. And you ex and you encompass all these different areas that are unspoken, that have no voice, and they're crying. And they can't wait to see you on screen because you represent something that they've never seen before and you have a unique voice. And she was just like, what? 
And I was like, you were looking for the answer. The answer is you. Dude, my my whole like inner circle recently had to tell me that same thing. <laughs> Real shit, man. Like, you're like, you experienced a lot of this Detroit hip hop stuff or you need to talk more on your podcast. You know, it's not corny. Do it. You know, and I finally was yeah. like, okay, all right, I'm, I will do it. And that, le- that leads me into another question is that um, currently I am um, working on the relaunch of my Detroit music podcast, Renaissance Soul, which people mm-hmm. that know me is, you know, same name in, is a takeoff to my early um, website from uh, the early 2000s that I uh, had that was basically a Jay Dilla website, Detroit hip hop website. Um, but this time um, it's just more about you know, taking a specific topic and, you know, going deep on it, you know, whether it's an album, an era, a single, a legacy of a person, whatnot. Uh, what advice would you have for me in regards to tackling, tackling this project? Uh, basically, the love and the dedication and the care that you have to try to cover whatever it is you want to cover is what's going to get you over and what's going to, to make things work for you. Because there's a lot of people that are like, I'm going to cover this subject because it's something that people would be interested in hearing. And there's, there's a story there and the shit ends up not working because there was no love. There was no skin in the game. And I know for a fact that for somebody to say, I'm going to make a site or I'm going to create a domain and I'm going to dedicate it to this because this is something that I actually care about, that I love and I feel needs to be um, shared with the world and be shown in in a light other than it has been or given its due. And that alone sets you apart from a whole bunch of other people and all you got to do is just stay the course yeah that's how the original um renaissance soul website worked out for me you know this is before social media this is like the old internet you know the you know the fun internet (laughs) you know message boards and stuff like that and it was like i just you know i had a love for you know like Jay Dilla's music and um, Detroit hip hop. I had, um, and this is even early on into my connect, into my like going out and being a part of the of the scene, like physically. But I had already, you know, met so many cool people through that that I knew I, I had a a degree or two separation to the to the information that I needed, and I was exposing all these like dope Detroit cats to the internet, to these, to this really like niche pockets of the internet, you know, the, like the okay player boards and Mm -hmm. all that stuff, you know, that's what existed in, in, in that old internet, in the old internet days. So you had cats that were, their music was being heard outside of Detroit for the first time, you know, the black milks, the, you know, big tones, Al's eyes and stuff like that, you know, that led to something for them, you know, and, it, and it was, it was because of everything that you just said. Yeah, the old days of BR Gunna. <laughs> the days of going on to MySpace and having um, Batin hit me up on MySpace talking about, I want to do a show in Boston. Who do you know? 
they could get me a show in Boston. Uh, the old days of asking him what was up with the Titus album. Like, you know, like those old days, you know, uh, ex- first encountering Hex Murder, you know, <laughs> like Black Milk's first independent singles, you know. Yeah. Those, finding, those... Out, finding out young RJ was related to RJ of RJ's last arrival, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Shit like that. That was fun. Those, yeah, those, those are, the, those are the days, man. All right, before we get out of here, um, there's like a final question that I always like to ask people, and usually I, I tell them to them, tell to them in advance so they can think about it. But I, I feel like I forgot to do that with you. Um, but um, who, who, who's somebody? Um, it could be one person or multiple people that you would suggest that uh, I have on this podcast that would be uh, very interesting to talk about, have good stories, good lessons to talk about that I could realistically get. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think that an amazing person to talk to, especially for what you want to do is J zone. Okay. J zone is an amazing interview. Uh, J-Zone is inspirational. J-Zone is somebody who has a unique perspective on music. Yeah. Uh, J-Zone is great because he was a musician first. He got into rap late. The rap he got into wasn't the rap that was popular. He uh, <laughs> and um, And the beauty is that his perspective on life is amazing. So he wrote the book that inspired me to, well, two books inspired me to change everything. Uh, Root for the Villain, his book, and Questlove's book um, were the two books that changed my life. I read those two books and I was like, I know what I have to do. Yeah. So yeah, it's J-Zone is a perfect person to interview, man. His yeah, he drops a lot of jewels online too. Yeah. Yes. His career transitions, Zins, amazing. All right. Yeah, it's, that's good. Yeah, thanks for that uh, that uh, suggestion. All right, before we get out of here, where um, you know, where can people go online to get more information about what you're doing? Uh, follow all the knowledge that you're dropping on a regular, daily basis. You know, where can people uh, you know, s- you know, see your stuff online? Hilarious. Um, I've been told by two literary agents and <laughs> and someone else that I am fucking up royally in this regard <laughs> twitter dart underscore adams uh, medium dart underscore adams instagram dart underscore adams and if you can find muckrack my muckrack is dart adams but pretty much that's it besides the podcast dart against humanity the podcast of uh, boston legends and pretty much that's everything right there and everyone that tells me you need a website and i'm like no hey yo thank you for listening to this episode of fresh is the word hosted and produced by myself kelly k fresh frazier empowered by anchor at anchor.fm slash fresh of the word intro theme music by foul mouth shimmy bango and knox money fresh of the word is available on all major streaming platforms please rate and review on apple podcasts and stitcher If you want to support Fresh of the Word, please consider pledging via Patreon at patreon.com slash fresh of the word. 
Follow Fresh is the Word on social media on Twitter at Fresh is the Pod, on Instagram at Fresh is the Word Podcast, and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Fresh the Word. For more information about Fresh is the Word and our other podcasts, Breaking Records and Renaissance Soul, and a collection of pop culture articles and reviews, please visit freshisthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and your support. Goodbye and good night. Fresh, 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 fresh is the word.